Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning radio show and podcast featuring your physician hosts, Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud, and this is the show where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics, and we do it from an authentically Catholic perspective. As usual, our guests will be heard across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Today, we have hematologist-oncologist William Bill McGarry from Florida, apparently went to medical school at the same place and roughly the same time as our noted co-host, Chris Stroud. He's going to explain why it's hematology and oncology, what we should know about cancer, and he has an amazing personal story. And before we get into that great story, other than where he went to medical school, of course, I thought we should talk a little bit about cancer in general. I don't think there's any medical topic that captures more attention among listeners than cancer. It's something we all think about, and many of us are going to experience at some point in our lives. You know, a basic question like, what is cancer? Tom, you operate on cancer for a living. How do you explain to people what cancer is? It's a cell that grew up on the wrong side of the tracks and just got out of control. No, it, it you know, I explained that it's the body making too much of a good thing and that, that a good thing becomes a bad thing. It eats away all the, all of the normal. And I'm really fortunate. I get to cure cancer every day. I get the easiest cancers. The guy we're going to talk to tonight gets the hardest cancers to treat. So he's lifting a lot heavier weight than I am. You know, a lot of patients will ask, well, uh, can it be prevented? Can't cancer be prevented? You know, a, a substantial proportion of cancers actually could be prevented, including all of the cancers that are caused by tobacco use and other really crazy, unhealthy behaviors. So every time we see one of those cancers, that was preventable by simply not participating in that behavior. That's not always a popular position to hold, but it's the truth. Well, and it's the same with what I operate on. It's, uh, it's ultraviolet light. You know, they want to ask me, well, how much sun is good for you? Well, as little as possible because, <laughs> and then, then, you know, I always use the line, it takes 1% as much sunlight to start wrinkling as it does to cause a sunburn. And then it's even more than that to cause cancer. So it reminds it, me of our, our cardiology guest who said, when we ask how much alcohol is okay. And he said less. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, because another- alcohol has also been linked, you know, to, you know, it's, it's a direct line. There is no healthy level of alcohol as far as cancer goes, although there apparently is, with red wine, a, a healthy low level for heart disease. But that you know, same guess showed that it wasn't true for cancer. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's interesting. Cancer actually varies really greatly by state. And when we look at that variation, it appears to be related to the way smoking is treated in those various states. There are certain states in the country where smoking is much more prevalent than others. And guess what? Their cancer rates are higher. Not you know, surprising. Yeah. Public policy has consequences. <laughs> Some other interesting statistics. You know, we talk a lot about the various kinds of cancers. And looking at the American Cancer Society's information, I found it pretty interesting the kind of cancer you're most likely to get as opposed to the cancer you're most likely to die from. And they're actually not the same cancers. If we think about men, men are much more likely to get prostate cancer, represents about 21% of cancers in men. But in terms of dying from cancer, guess what? It's lung cancer right back to smoking. Uh, And if if we look at women, women are much more likely to get breast cancer about 30% of cancers in women are breast cancer, but they're much more likely to die from lung cancer. Again, there's the smoking. It's an aggressive cancer. You know, fortunately for men, they're more likely to die with prostate cancer than of prostate cancer. Yeah, exactly. Or said differently, if we live long enough, we'll get prostate cancer. Yes. And I've heard that a huge percentage of men, if they're autopsied at death or have performed, they'll find it and they huge number. I'm sure our guest can tell us that if it's important, but he has more important fish to fry when we interview him. (laughs) You know, uh, we don't talk about tobacco much. I think as I was preparing for this show, I realized we don't, we haven't spoken much about it. And that's because I think we don't encounter it that much, but it remains a terrible adversary to good health uh, and a major cause of cancer. And I found a statistic again from the American Cancer Society looking at the proportion of cancer deaths that are attributable to cigarette smoking, about 82% of lung cancers are attributable to cigarette smoke. 
Um, so it's amazing that even in this day and time, as much as we know, tobacco remains a foe uh, of good health. You know what? Even in the 70s, when I was in junior high school, we had to take this course on drugs and tobacco was one of the things they talked about. And even then, there were kids smoking, referring to cigarettes as cancer sticks. So they even <laughs> knew it back then in the 70s. <laughs> Well, I'm sure that our host, our guest, I should say, that we're hosting is going to have a lot of fascinating information, even more than we've been able to dig up uh, on cancer. On cancer. And before we go to our break, I will pose our patented medical trivia question of the day. I hope not it's not a malignant one. Oh, that hurt, Chris. The Greek physicians, Hippocrates and Galen, among others, noted that some tumors had swollen veins that reminded them of a particular animal. And the name of this animal in Latin is cancer. What is the animal? You'll have to wait till the end of the show to find out the answer, but we'll be back with more and our stimulating guest here on Dr. Doctor from the virtual studios of Redeemer Radio after the break. Welcome back to Dr. Doctor from the virtual studios of Redeemer Radio. And our guest on this episode is Dr. William or Bill McGarry. Uh, he is a hematology oncology specialist. Uh, he went to the same medical school that I did a couple of years behind me. So not quite as old as I am. He went to the <laughs> University of Florida for his undergrad. And then he stayed at the University of Florida for medical school where he met his wife, Laura. He did his residency in internal medicine there at UF in Gainesville, Florida. He did his fellowship in hematology oncology at the MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston, Texas, where he helped establish a clinic for the underserved. Um, he's practiced in West Palm Beach for a while. He's been in Vero Beach from 2001 until the present. Uh, he teaches at Florida State University College of Medicine, among many, many other outstanding things. Welcome to Dr. Dr. Bill. We're happy to have you. Oh, thank you very much. I'm pleased to be here. And good to see you again after all these years. Uh, you look the same. I do not. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Bill, after going through, you know, the grind that is medical school, you chose to become something even more difficult than a medical student. You chose to be an oncologist and hematologist. Why? Well, I, I started out medical school with that in mind. Um, when I started undergrad, my intention wasn't to go into medicine at all. I was planning on joining the Air Force, and I had an unrestricted ROTC scholarship to go anywhere I got accepted. Uh, but unfortunately, just before I was due to start, I developed advanced stage four lymphoma. Um, you know, I, at the time, I, I was starting basic training at the Air Force Academy, um, oh. you know, waiting for a final word on that. But I, I ended up having to leave and uh, went through two years of chemotherapy at MD Anderson. Oh, so my. while I was there, I was actually um, a participant in a clinical trial for what has now become the standard chemotherapy for lymphoma, uh, the, the CHOP regimen. Oh. And unfortunately, while I was there, I watched many of my fellow patients die because lymphoma wasn't as curable back then as it is now. Mm. Uh, I was very fortunate. I also had two great role models in uh, Dr. Robert Benjamin at MD Anderson and my local oncologist, Dr. Neil Abramson, that you know they encouraged me so that by the time I finished, I really felt that was my calling, that, that this happened to me because this is the path God wanted me to take. Well, that's probably a good segue into the next question, and um, and that is, I think to most listeners, the idea of a career in hematology oncology has to be the most emotionally draining option a student could could make or select. What is it that made the specialty attractive to you instead of overwhelming to you? Well, the big thing is, is I, I really wanted to make a difference, and you can make the biggest difference where there's the biggest need. Back in the, the late 80s, early 90s, I was starting all of this. We still had very high death rates in, among our cancer patients. I mean, I've been fortunate to see things get much better since then, and, and the side effects get much better. But really, it was the need to want to make a difference. <clears throat> and my faith played a very large role in this, too. Um, I truly feel this is what God has wanted me to do, that that everything that's happened to me in my life was meant to steer me down this path. So you were sensitive to God's providence, even in your late teens. I mean, how, how did you sense that? How did that come to you? It's, it's not an audible voice, obviously. Oh, no, it wasn't, but it, it was all these 
things that would happen to me that were just improbable things that should happen. And as I tell people, God's never really been that subtle with me. <laughs> I mean, when, <laughs> Lucky. When, 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 when big bad things happen to me and then I seem to overcome them, not by anything of my own. And I can't help but feel that it's, it's for a reason. Now, your specialty is, you know, affectionately known as hemonc, short for hematology and oncology. Why is it a, a, a bifurcated or double specialty, like Chris's obstetrics and gynecology? You don't just hear of hematologists or oncologists. Well, originally, oncology came out of the specialty of hematology because oh. our first successes in treating cancer were in the blood diseases and the leukemias. So people started studying solid tumor treatments under hematology. So the programs have always been combined, but you can choose. You can choose to be only an oncologist or only a hematologist. And probably about two thirds of people in training choose to only do oncology. Is that and, you? No, I, I've done both. I, I, I ended up studying both. Um, the reason most people choose oncology is it's a little bit easier to explain. I can point to a chart and say, you got a tumor there and we got to get rid of it. <laughs> but when I talk about hematology, they think I'm some sort of wizard because I'm talking about different proteins and things that most physicians have never heard of. <laughs> so it, I think most people conceptually feel more comfortable in oncology, even in the training programs. So talk to us about um, your, your training that led up to where you are, because I think we all know that it was a long path. You know, what happened after medical school and what was the, the rigors of being a resident and a fellow and to help the listeners understand what the path to get you where you are looked like? Well, like all medical specialties, you know, you, you start off with your getting your bachelor's degree, which usually takes four years, four years of medical school. Um, then for the internal medicine subspecialties, you have to become board certified in internal medicine. So that's three years of internal medicine training, you know, one year of internship, two years of residency, where you're, you're on call every third or fourth night, um, basically for three years straight. Um, then when you finish that, you move on to the fellowship into the subspecialty. And for Hemont combined, it's a three-year fellowship. So you're in your mid-30s by the time you graduate. Well, especially you, because you had those two years of treatment for Hodgkin's when I presume you weren't in college. Uh, no, actually I was. I, I attended classes and went through school. Um, I had to stay on my father's insurance, so I had to be a full-time student. So I was taking classes. I was attending Jacksonville University. Uh, living in my parents' house at the time. And I transferred to the University of Florida because, well, quite honestly, they, they had the highest acceptance rate among undergrads in the Southeast at the time. And I figured I would increase my odds of getting into medical school if I had gone to UF undergrad. Yeah, you uh, were behind me. And so you saw that if they accepted me, they would take anybody. <laughs> followed suit. You know, so Bill, as, as we think about those 10 years of, that you dedicated to education, um, Help us understand what your Catholic walk was like during that time. And how did your Catholic faith affect you getting through those uh, many years of training? Well, I probably slacked off more during those years of training. <laughs> I'm necessity. I mean, it was harder to go to mass. It was harder to, to get off. I still prayed, but probably not as often as I should have. Um, you know, fortunately, and I guess this is a, a little anecdotal story. So when I was a fourth year student, I met my wife and we went out on our first date and I remember her telling my roommates saying, you know, I, I really like this girl. She'd be the perfect one for me if only she was Catholic. So I went and I called her and, and it was November 1st, 1991. And I, I call her and her sister answers the phone and she goes, Oh yeah, Laura's not here right now. Um, she's at mass Catholic, <laughs> and today's a holy day of obligation. <laughs> so I, I hung up the phone. I said, well, I guess that's it. <laughs> you know, we're done. <laughs> nice. That's beautiful. Bill, what is the typical day or week like in the life of a hematologist oncologist? Well, I'm very lucky. I'm, I'm a kind of a dinosaur in today's world. I'm still in independent private practice where I am my own boss. So I can make my own hours. Um, a typical day is I get up about 5.30 and I start doing all the paperwork in those things we euphemistically call quality measures. <laughs> you know, for, for every 20 minute 
office visit with a patient, I've figured out I have about 15 minutes of paperwork. So I actually try to get up at 5.30 and do all the grudge work first so I can spend more time in the room with my patients. Uh, then I actually, I got into this habit when I was driving my kids to school. They're, they're older than this now, but I would attend 7.30 mass at our local church because um, the school was associated you know, with, with the parish. Um, then from 8 to about 9.30, I do my inpatient rounds, start seeing patients at 9.30 till about 4.30. I, I don't take any breaks for lunch. I work straight through. Uh, then at 4.30, finish up whatever other paperwork, return any phone calls, head back to the hospital if I have to. Um, usually get home around 6, take a little bit of time to exercise, have dinner with my family, then it's back trying to catch up on my journals and then trying to find half an hour or so to do some evening prayers. And how long do you spend with each patient, or does it vary by visit type? Um, it, it varies by visit type, but I can tell you that the only true answer to that is not enough time. It, 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 yes. it still comes down to probably about 11 or 12 minutes on a visit, and it's all because of the paperwork that you know we're stuck with. I, I don't go into the room with my laptop working on the EHR. I want to look into people's eyes. And it's a lot of our colleagues now, they, there's so much paperwork. They're, they're on their computer instead of talking to the patient. I think our listeners need to realize that you, in some ways, the electronic medical record can be a near occasion of sin in treating people like objects. And you have to make a very committed, intentional choice not to have that with you. So the default for doctors is to, to have it with them looking at that and splitting their eye time. So kudos to you for doing what you do. And, and the, the problem, and, and I guess one thing I like everybody to understand about medicine now is if you don't do it, you get severe financial penalties, mostly for Medicare. And the amount of the penalties would lower the reimbursement below what it costs me to pay my staff. So I wouldn't have an office if I don't do the, the paperwork. So I have to carve out other time so I can give the time to the patient because I actually think the patient deserves it more. You know, Bill, this series that we've done on specialties, um, we're trying to give listeners a sense of what it's like to be that, that specialist. And I think everyone thinks about a cancer specialist. And I'd be willing to bet everyone wonders what that conversation is like between you and a patient when you're giving the worst news that anyone could ever receive. Um, give us a sense of what that conversation is like with you and how your faith uh, alters and shapes that conversation. Well, it's never easy. There, there's no doubt it's never easy. And I actually, when I first meet a patient, I try to look for clues if they are a person of faith. And it's easy when you're Catholic because people tend to like to wear you know, miraculous medals or crosses and things like that really, really help. I usually have an easier time if I'm talking to somebody else of faith, even if they're not Catholic. Um, mm. Whenever you give bad news, you also have to give some sort of hope. And the hope may not be that I can cure them, but the hope can be that I can keep them free of pain, that I can help relieve their suffering. So I always try to plan the conversation before I go into the room, but it's, it's never easy. Mm. It's never easy. And, there's never a good way to do it. You just try to be soft and not blunt and make sure they have another family member there, which has been a problem with the pandemic because we have not, not allowed family members in the hospitals, you know, with people. And so you're trying to give somebody bad news when they're in the hospital and they're not allowed to have their wife or husband with them. And it makes it so much more difficult to do that. Mm. Bill, how are those conversations different for you because you're a Catholic compared to if you weren't a Catholic who took his faith seriously? Well, I always have hope for my patients because I believe that we have a loving God and that if I pray for my patient as well, that, that God's mercy will, will come through for them. But I think I have more strength in it because I believe in God. Mm. But I can't say that it's, it's, it's never easy. Bill, we think of an oncologist as only seeing patients with cancer, but as a hematologist, do you see some patients who don't have cancer? Yeah, about half of my patients don't, don't have cancer. Half? So about half, because a lot of people don't like to do hematology. So for about 
25 years, I was, the, or 20 years, I was the only board certified hematologist in my county here in oh. Florida. Now, two others have joined me, and I'm very grateful for that. But um, so it, I end up seeing a lot of clotting disorders, trying to get people ready for surgery, um, pre-op clearances. I, I see a lot of anemias, a lot of hemochromatosis or iron overload, things like yes. that. Oh, very good. So tell us some stories, one or two, about how you're able to improve the lives of your patients. Well, I'm going to give you one, and she gave me permission to say it, but I'm not going to give her her name. And this was one of the first patients I had. I, it was back when I was in West Palm, and I got called to the ER to see this young woman who was 12 weeks pregnant and had a huge mass in the middle of her chest. So I walk in the room, and there's this beautiful young woman with her dashing husband there. And, you know, of course, they have the look of fear on their face like everybody does when the oncologist walks into the room. And I'm sitting down, I'm talking to her, and she comes out and asks me, and she goes, well, you know, we, we got you as a second opinion. And she goes, should I get an abortion? And I, my answer to her was, there's some people who would suggest that I'm not one of them because I'm a Catholic. I said, you need to understand that, that if that's what you want, I'm not the doctor for you. Uh, and she actually breathed a sigh of relief and she says, I'm glad to hear that because I'm a devout Baptist and that's not the right answer for me either. And so between the two of us, you know, we worked through a regimen where I picked drugs that were least likely to cross the, um, the placenta. Um, she ended up having a lymphoma, of course. And then after she delivered, we gave her aggressive therapy and then she eventually went on to a stem cell transplant. So because I was there, she was able to give birth to this beautiful now young woman who just college. Um, and even though I don't live in the same town, I'm still friends with them. And they send me pictures of their daughter who, who her middle name ended up being Faith um, oh. because of all this. So, and, and I have countless stories of things like that in which my faith was able to help guide me, you know, through the treatment. So the decision that the mother made enabled her daughter to be alive today. In other words, the world would see her as having an either-or decision, either the baby or me. But I, I like to think of the Catholic faith as a both-and, both the baby and the mom. You know, Christ is both God and man. It's just built into our DNA as Catholics. And that's such a beautiful story of how you live that out. It, on a day-to-day -day basis, each, each day or each week, are there fulfilling aspects to being a hematologist-oncologist? Well, there is because, you know, I've, I've been doing this now for 23 years. So, you know, I actually have a, a nice collection of survivors who I see. And <clears throat> living in a small town, I'm running into people whose lives I saved because I was oh. there. And that's yeah. very rewarding, you know, um, to, to be able to help somebody make it, even if I can't save their life, to, to be able to relieve their pain or to help somebody make it to the birth of a grandchild or uh, a a son or a grandchild's graduation or a marriage or even just a family trip. That's beautiful. Now, now Bill, yeah. I, I want to be a little cultured for our listeners now. I apologize for this, but there's a book by Alexander Solzhenitsyn called Cancer Ward, and it's somewhat autobiographical. Solzhenitsyn had a stomach cancer, was treated with radiation in the 50s in the then Soviet Union. So in the book, Dr. Donsova is a woman who's the head of radiation oncology, and she says this, why should I, an oncologist, be struck down by cancer when I know every single one of them, when I can imagine all the attendant effects, consequences, and complications? And then her mentor, another doctor, Oroshenkov, responds. He says, oh, there's no injustice there. His bass voice was measured and persuasive as he said, on the contrary, it is justice in the highest degree. It's the truest of all tests for a doctor to suffer from the disease he specializes in. That's really loaded. So how do you identify with this Dr. Don Sova who's diagnosed with cancer? And what do you think about what her mentor told her? Well, I have a deep and personal uh identification with that it, it um and i i agree 
to a very large extent what, what her mentor had said. You know, we always joke in medicine that doctors always suffer from the diseases that they treat. Yes. Now, I can't believe that completely because I don't see Dr. Stroud getting pregnant anymore. <laughs> but, but, you know, there, 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 is, there is a sense of that. So, you know, my personal story in that was that eight years ago, I, I was basic in the palm of my life. I had really worked out hard to get back in shape, was ready to do a triathlon. And I had started doing medical missionary work in Haiti, um, actually with my parochial vicar at my local parish. He, he and I would go down there and we helped set up a, a, a little clinic after the earthquake in 2010. And I was due to go down there and um, I started getting a little bit of reflux. So I was thinking, I must have Heartburn an ulcer. Heartburn for our listeners. Yeah, sorry, heartburn. Said, I, I must be coming down with an ulcer because, you know, I have all this stress in the practice and, and all <laughs> this. That was, was when the EHRs were first mandatory. And so I had to set all that up. Um, so I, um, I basically harassed a friend of mine to do an endoscopy on me. And when I say harassed, I called him every day for six weeks. <laughs> and I think he only agreed to do it if I agreed to stop calling him. So, you know, but unfortunately, um, what we found is I had a fist-sized tumor at the bottom of my esophagus. And how and did he feel at that point? He couldn't tell me. He walked into the room, and he was actually somebody who I went to Haiti with before. Oh. So we had done this type of missionary work um, together, and he couldn't even tell me. He had no words. He, when I woke up, he just walked in. He goes, um, and he just handed me the pictures. And wow, you know, I remember looking at it, and you know, my wife was in the room, and she saw the the look on my face, and she's like, well, "What is this? What is this?" And I'm like, "It's nothing. It's just bad." It's just, just badness. And then unfortunately, um, I had a CAT scan about an hour later and it showed it had already spread. I had six golf ball sized tumors um, in my abdomen. Mm. Well, I'm an oncologist and I knew what that meant. I knew what the odds were for that. It meant less than a 5% chance of surviving. So I told my and wife. We are interviewing you virtually live in Florida, not from yeah. beyond the pale. <laughs> exactly. Spoil, spoiler alert yes but i, I am um, alive well I, I i i told my wife i said you know i still feel good so what i want to do is enjoy the rest of my life and i just want to go down to grand cayman and i want to drink beer fish and scuba dive until i can't do it anymore and then i'll come back and i'll roll in hospice and my wife said no way <laughs> you are going to be an example of faith and courage to our children no matter how this comes out, this is what we're going to do. And so she called the priest I go to Haiti with, and he came over to pray with me. Um, gave me this bottle of water that he said he got from Lourdes, and he refused to leave till I drank it. And if I had known the bottle was 15 years old, I probably wouldn't have drank it. But, but I drank it in front of him anyway. But then we prayed, and, and we sat and we prayed the rosary. And this was a Friday. So we're doing the Sorrowful Mysteries, and the first one was the Agony in the Garden. Mm. And I don't know about you, but I always wondered why that was called the Agony in the Garden, because the Passion hadn't really happened yet. You know, the apostles and Jesus were just praying, right? I mean, and then it, I realized the Agony was that Christ knew everything that was going to happen to him, mm. that he was choosing to go down this path in which he would suffer for us, but he understood how much he would suffer. And I said, wait. That's kind of like me. I knew <laughs> what the side effects of the chemotherapy was going to be, what the surgery was going to be like, what the radiation was going to be like. And I said, so God chose to suffer just as I will. And it all made sense to me then that God chose to come among us to show us not to be afraid, that he wasn't asking anything of us that he himself wasn't willing to do. And it really gave me more ease. I mean, I was full of anxiety until I hit that realization in the, in the middle of that decade. And I was like, wait, I, I get it now. I now know what that was all about and why it's called the agony in the garden. Well, I went through the treatments and um, I went through the first chemotherapy and I was bedridden for a week afterwards. I mean, every side effect I warned my patients as a possibility I had. <laughs> And, and I wasn't, I, I wasn't going to do it again. Um, and I told my wife, I said, you know, I'm going to do another cat, a PET scan just to make sure 
it's doing something because I don't want to do this and find out it was all for naught. And I did the CAT scan and there was no tumor. Uh, After the first, the first CT, we couldn't see anything. Uh, so I, I was taking guidance from one of my old professors at MD Anderson. So I called him and I told him that and he's like, no, you got to keep, got to push ahead. You got to keep doing it. So I did the second one and, and I repeated that one with a full pet and there was still nothing to be seen. So he actually had me fly out to Houston, got an endoscopy and they couldn't find anything on the endoscopy. <laughs> so, um, but you know, we, he and I went through the literature and the, the people who managed to beat it after good responses were the people who had the full therapy. So I went through everything, the chemotherapy, the radiation. We actually, my wife and I moved to Tampa for, for two months. And my mother-in-law came and moved into our house, took care of our kids. And I got that at, at the Moffitt Cancer Center. Then um, eventually I ended up getting the full esophagectomy at the Moffitt Cancer Center with, in which they took out two thirds of my esophagus and a third of my stomach. Um, when I finished the therapy and I met with a surgeon afterwards, he told me, he goes, you know, I couldn't believe it, but we, I had the pathologist go through everything with fine cuts. We couldn't find a trace of tumor in you. Uh, Thanks be to God. That, that's a beautiful place to take a break from this section, segment of the interview. <laughs> the listeners can just reflect during the break. We'll be back with more of Bill in oncology here on Dr. Doctor. Abortion. Pornography. Embryonic stem cell research. Corporate contributions to Planned Parenthood. Do you invest in companies that are engaged in these practices? The Ave Maria Mutual Funds do not, and their investment portfolios reflect that. Ave Maria Mutual Funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors can invest in the no-load Ave Maria Mutual Funds. You can learn more about the Ave Maria Mutual Funds today at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com. You're back with Dr. Doctor and our very special guest. And those of you like me have probably been wiping the tears from your eyes uh, just before the break. Uh, and I told Bill on the break when he said, you know, there was no tumor. I said, all I could think of was the tomb was empty, just like when they looked in your stomach and that tumor was gone. But help our listeners and keep walking us through this truly miraculous story. Well, um, after all that, you know, I, I was left in pretty bad shape from all the surgeries. So I had a very long recovery rehab, trying to get back to work. And I got almost two years um, without working. Um, finally though, I, I was starting to go back to work and it was my wife and I's 20th wedding anniversary. So I wanted to do something special. So I arranged for us to renew our vows at the Vatican. Um, which really isn't easy to do. It's actually kind of hard to set up. And no, the Pope didn't do it. I <laughs> just so everybody knows. But um, I had a priest friend who had a friend who was there. And so he was one of the renewer vows at a chapel, um, at a convent right off the um, Vatican grounds, but overseeing the Vatican. So I basically spent whatever money I had left after not working for two years to, to set that up. Um, and I get a call out of the blue from the Order of Malta. The Order of Malta, um, it's an ancient organization, just like the Knights of the Holy Sepulchre, uh, been around for 900 years. And today they run missionary hospitals throughout the world. But one of their main things is every year they all meet at the Shrine at Lourdes and they will bring sick people with them uh, to go to Lourdes. So they called me out of the blue. Um, I had had some connection with them with my missionary work, but they said, we would like to invite you to come with us to Lourdes as one of our malads, one of the sick people. And I, I initially turned them down because I said, I, I don't have any more money, so I can't really afford two trips like that. And I'm like, don't worry, we have somebody willing to sponsor you. So, okay, I accepted it. So my wife and kids and I, we, we, we go to Rome. Our bishop had gotten us tickets for the Wednesday papal audience in, in the square, you know, the one where there's 100,000 people every Wednesday morning. But I had to pick up the tickets at the American Pontificate and when I show up, the guy's looking at me and goes, you look like you haven't been to confession in a while. I'm not going to give you tickets until you go over there and, and give a confession. <laughs> so I, I get in line and I meet another young guy uh, about my age. We talk things over and everything. And we hit it off. And we were talking about basketball and you know things we had in common. And then we all went our, our ways. He left with his family. I left with mine. Well, two weeks later, I arrive in Baltimore to go with the Order of Malta to, to Lourdes. And they say, hey, we want you to meet the guy who's sponsoring you to, to pay your way on the trip. 
And it was the guy I met in line at the Vatican. <laughs> so uh, he and I have actually become good friends after that. He's Dr. John Quinn. Um, so I, I really had a very inspirational pilgrimage there. Um, all the other knights and dames who I met in the order were such impressive people, but they were completely humble when you would meet them. I was Googling them because I was like, wait, I recognize this guy somewhere. And, and <laughs> I was seeing, you know, former NFL players, CEOs of, of multinational corporations, physicians whose I had read their books and textbooks, you know, from Johns Hopkins, from, from major universities. Yet everybody was there praying. And I don't know if any of you guys have made it to Lourdes, but there's really no reason to go there other than to pray. And so when you go there, you're seeing people from almost every country, all praying, all in their own language. But because, because we're all Catholic, we're all unified and our prayers are the same. You mm -hmm. can attend a mass in any language and you know exactly where you are in participating in that mass. Mm -hmm. So when I was there, one of the other uh, members of the order leaned over and whispered in my ear and they said, you know, this is really what heaven's like if, <laughs> if you want it. And so Lord's became very special to me. When I was there, I was able to hear the, the witness talk of one of my, my fellow Malads at the time. Um, and she actually had a, an infarction of her spinal cord, a, a blood clot to her spinal cord that left her partially paralyzed. And she had suffered with this for many, many years. And she ended up going to Lourdes. And one of the things at Lourdes is um, they have these baths that are fed by the spring that St. Bernadette had dug out. And they lowered her into the bath and she walked out and she's been walking on her own ever since then. Oh, wow. So, and, and you know, to, to hear that story, which, which, yeah, I think my story is incredible because, you know, I, I benefited from it, but I see <laughs> that and there's no way you can deny the hand of God when you see things like that. No. Um, so because of, you know, the experiences I had when, when we returned, I told my wife, I said, I think I need to get involved with this. So, I started out volunteering with them and then eventually I went ahead and got invested as a, as a knight of the order. Hmm. So Bill, I mean, there's so many different directions we can go with your story. Let's think about those listeners now who are wondering, okay, but I have cancer. I know somebody with cancer. Is it better to have cancer in 2020 than it was in 2000 or 1990? And if so, why? Oh, it, it definitely is. The, the first thing is, we're able to cure so many more people, you know, back in the eighties, um, I, I used to give a talk for the cancer society and I would, the, 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 the hook, the brag point of the talk was, you know, if you were to gather all the um, cancer survivors in the country now, we could fill up Ben Hill Griffin stadium at Florida field three times, you know, like that was a big accomplishment. Well, now I have to say we could fill Manhattan twice. Uh, I mean, that, wow. that's, that, that's what the advances have been. And it's getting even better. You know, I'm now treating patients with, with newer developments that, you know, before I would tell them, oh, you have a year or three years to live. And now, you know, they're at 10 years without the cancer having come back. And it's getting better every year. Wow. You know, the, the pipeline of new developments is amazing. And how are the, the drugs fundamentally different than they used to be? Well, they're more targeted now. And, and back then, the, the whole concept was, well, we're going to poison you and your normal cells will recover faster than the cancer cells. And then we're going to hit you with more poison. And, and that's not really the model now. The model now is we figure out why that cell became cancer and we target that, that specific abnormality directly. Then the second route that we're doing is we're also training the immune system to fight the cancer. So you probably heard of these checkpoint inhibitors or seen ads for these drugs on TV, but it, um, they really are a game changer. Now where it's going after this is we're actually taking patients T cells out of their body, um, genetically altering them to fight the cancer outside of the body and then infusing them back in. And that's CAR T cells. And that's what's being developed now. So well, a T I, cell I, is a type of white blood cell. That's part of the immune system. Right. And, and that fights um, parasites fights things like COVID and fights cancer. And so it, it's, I, I actually can see oncologists being somewhat um, obsolete within 10 or 20 years. Wow. With, with how fast advances are going. 
obsolete. Someone's going to have to treat that, these that, patients. Well, somebody will, but I think that the treatments are getting less and less oh, side effects and, and, and more and more that even general doctors might be willing to write for them at some point. Wow. That's, a day, there to look, that's a day to look forward to. Bill, what are the biggest ethical challenges a hematologist oncologist faces in his practice? Well, once again, I'm fortunate because I'm an independent practice, so I can say no to things that I don't like. But um, I, I have a fear, and, and, th and this is what drove me to seek out the Catholic Medical Association because they're, they're big on this. Um, there's such a push by the pro-abortion side and even the euthanasia side that I always worry if I ever was forced to be employed, would I have to toe the line or be fired if I don't go along with, with something like that. And, and you can see the movements to try to strip conscious objection provision away. So, and, and that's why I got involved with the Catholic Medical Association because they're big on helping to try to protect those things. So that, that's probably my biggest ethical issue right now is, you know, like that first patient that I spoke about, Yes. you know, many doctors would have, um, said, uh, oh, no, you, you, you need to go get an abortion. Now, fortunately, at that time, I was employed, but I was employed by Catholic East. So the Sisters of Allegheny would back me up. So I knew I could say, no, I'm Catholic. I wouldn't do that. <laughs> but, but I could see someday where I, you know, would be working with a secular corporation. And they're like, no, you have to do this. So the pregnant patient with cancer is the biggest ethical situation in your specialty. But I also see euthanasia coming down the line, too. I see mm -hmm. it in Europe. Um, I have friends who practice in Europe, particularly the Netherlands, and they say it is a big issue that, you know, for, for any major health system, not spending money to keep somebody alive is always more cost effective than encouraging them to, you know, to euthanize themselves. And, and I, I have a big ethical problem with that. Now, I haven't been involved in that because I'm independent. I, nobody can fire me except myself. I guess my wife can, but nobody else can fire me. So I, I, I you know, I, I don't have to deal with it now. But the way medicine's going, staying independent is getting harder every year. Well, Bill, I mean, with that in mind, what do you wish everybody knew about cancer, our listeners? Uh, what do you wish you could get through um, to listeners about cancer that you feel like isn't well enough known? Well, uh, two things really. And, and the first one we already talked about were how the great advances were and how even side effects are so much less. I mean, when I had lymphoma, we didn't have all the anti-nausea drugs we have now. Mm -hmm. Everybody, you walk into a cancer ward, everybody's nauseous and vomiting. And that's just not, that's not the case anymore. That's the minority of patients now that, that suffer that. But the, the biggest thing I think people need to understand is cancer is really individualized. Not only is each type of cancer different, but the same type of cancer in each individual is different. Mm -hmm. So, you know, one woman has breast cancer, not the same as the next woman who has breast cancer. You, you hear a lot of people saying, well, you know, my friend did this, my friend did that. You have to, all the treatments are individualized per patient and per the tumor. So, yeah, the suffering is kind of universal and, you know, that what people go through in the anxiety, but the exact treatments aren't all going to be identical. And, and Bill, you not only understand cancer as being a double survivor of it, you understand it taking care of patients, but now you've been a caregiver. Now what happened in, in God's providence? Well, the first year um, after I had gone as a Malati, the Order of Malta, um, the year after that, my wife and I had volunteered and they put us on a team where I was the doctor leading the team. My wife was my nurse. A week before we were due to leave, my wife comes to me. She goes, do you feel this in my breast? And I ended up diagnosing a stage three, very aggressive breast cancer in my wife. Well, um, stage three means it was in the lymph nodes in her armpit? Yeah, it was in 11 lymph nodes. Okay. Uh, yeah. And, it, and it, it had, one of the things we look at at the tumor is its growth rate. And her, her tumor had the highest growth rate I've ever seen in a breast cancer. It was a very aggressive cancer. And, you know, her sister had had breast cancer uh, a few years earlier, so she was getting checked. And, you know, I was even doing exams on her, and this was not there, you know, a month earlier. It, it, and it was, it was about, um, 
you know, maybe about two and a half inches in size, the, the primary tumor, uh, when, when she got the diagnosis. Now, I, I can't really um, complain about being a caregiver too much because my wife is really strong. <laughs> you know, she did not whine anywhere near as much as I did. So <laughs> me taking care of her was a lot easier than her taking care of me. They are so the really, stronger sex, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah. I really, I really can't uh, uh, pat myself on the back for that. I, I, to give you any how strong she was, as soon as she had the surgical drains taken out, she put on the uh, uniform for the order and went and served as my nurse on that Lord's pilgrimage. And didn't tell anybody. Wow. She refused to be a Malad. So she, uh, you, you know, went ahead and did that. Wow. Oh my goodness. And she's a, she was, or is an oncology nurse. Yes. Um, when I met her, she was a pediatric oncology nurse at, at the university of Florida. That's why I stayed there for the residency. She still had, had time left that she had to be there. Um, but yeah, so, so she understands a lot of what I go through. You know, if I get cancer, I want to see you, you know, that's just <laughs> incredible, Bill. I, what do you, what is the grace of what you have been through as a doctor, as a patient, as a caregiver? Um, well, to be honest with you, and, and it has to do with, with kind of how I view all suffering. You know, we, um, one thing about all cancer patients, and, and if you remember when you were a student, you're rotating through, almost all of them were very pleasant and very nice people. Mm. And the reason for that is when you're faced with something like that, all the little petty things in our life seem to drop away. And to a large extent, I view that as part of the, um, part of the reasons that we suffer. One of the blessings of suffering is we suddenly realize that, you know, as St. Paul has said, everything that we are is not really of ourselves, is that it comes from God, and you're able to focus on God more. And so, you know, my two bouts with cancer they, they did change my life, but they slowed me down. And it, it made me realize how much, how much more importance I needed to put into daily prayer life. Mm. That, that I wasn't praying for God, I was praying for me. And I really needed that. And I don't know if I would have learned that if, if I didn't have the cancers. You Bill, know, in it, the last minute, what final message, resources, would you like to leave with the listeners? Well, your biggest resource is gonna be your prayers and in, to God. Um, I would, if you're looking for direct medical information, there's two organizations. I mean, you could do WebMD, but also the National Comprehensive Cancer Network has patient sites, and it's written more in lay language. Uh, the American Society of Clinical Oncology and the American Cancer Society also have that. But whatever you get, let it be peer-reviewed. Don't let it be whatever some you know, person put up in a blog. You want something where somebody can criticize you know, what, what has been written. So if they write something in error, it can be corrected. Bill McGarry, what a blessing for us to be with you, for you to share your story, your graces. God bless you. Thanks for teaching us about oncology. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Welcome back to Dr. Doctor from the virtual studios of Redeemer Radio. And listeners know by pattern, it's time for the answer to our medical trivia question. Yes. Tom, take it away. You got it, Chris. Those ancient Greek physicians noted that some tumors had swollen veins and looked like a certain animal. And though, so they called this disease after the Latin animal, which was known as cancer. But what do we call the animal? And if you know the uh, constellations of the zodiac, you know the answer. Because cancer is the crab. <laughs> yes, which reminds me of a joke my old roommate from medical school used to say. He said, I went to a restaurant and I asked them if they serve crabs there. And they said, yes, sir, we'll serve anybody. <laughs> oh, very nice. Yes, very yes. Nice. little dad, someone called humor. Well, in Greek, the word for crab is karkinos, from where we get the word carcinoma. Exactly. So the, yeah, the most common cancers I operate on are carcinomas, which are typically cancers that come from tissue that lines things. So anyway, there you have it. Cancer is Latin for crab. You know, I think this has to be one of the most insightful episodes that we've been honored to put together. I'll have to admit, we don't think about cancer that much. It's not something that's going to happen to me. But our guest not only takes care of it, but has lived through it, experienced it, and then cared for his wife with it. Uh, I can't think of a more touching episode that we've been honored to host. 
And he was incredibly, profoundly humble, mm. impressive. I mean, like I said, if I get cancer, I want him for my cancer doctor. I mean, he knows it from every possible angle. I keep thinking of St. John Paul, be not afraid. At no point in his discussions did it sound as though there was any element of panic or fear or anger or despair. He just seemed to pick up and, and move on. Uh, and that has to come from an incredibly strong centralized faith. And he just reeks of credibility. So for <laughs> anybody suffering from cancer, it's like he knows it. He's not filling your head with platitudes. He, he's the real deal. And he admits that we can't always cure, but we can always give hope. Uh, because when we realize that this next life is forever, not our current life, it does give us something to hope in. Yeah, it reminded me of our friend, Dr. Ashley Fernandez, when he was talking about essentially the ethical rules of practice. And his last principle was um, uh, to stay with them. I'm going to be with you. I'm, I'm never going to abandon you. Uh, and if I'm facing something as horrific as cancer, uh, I hope that there is a great Catholic man like our guest who's sitting there in the reach with me and helping me fight that. Yeah, thanks be to God for Bill McGarry. And we thank you for listening to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning official radio program and podcast of the Catholic Medical Association brought to you from the virtual studios of Redeemer Radio on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. And please share the good news of Dr. Doctor with a friend and invite them to listen to their favorite podcast app or always at RedeemerRadio.com forward slash doctor. And be sure to rate and review our show to help new listeners find us. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud. And we're signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-hosts or the Catholic Medical Association. Find our past episodes and keep up with the latest from Dr. Doctor by subscribing in your favorite podcast app and following us on Facebook. Get links to follow and subscribe or submit a question for our doctors by texting the word doctor to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or visit RedeemerRadio.com slash doctor. Have you dreamt of visiting the places where Jesus walked or where the saints made their marks on the world? Trust your trip to the Pilgrimage Company that more priests, Catholic authors, speakers, and theologians trust. Select International Tours. For 36 years, Select International Tours has provided the very best in pilgrimage travel, including centrally located hotels, the best local Christian guides, and unparalleled access to sacred sites and cultural experiences. Selectinternationaltours.com is the first step on your next pilgrimage.